Blossom Your Awesome Podcast, episode number 55. Today on the show, David Woods Bartley is here with us. David teaches people how to journey from mental wellness to mental wellness. David is a member of the National Alliance on Mental Illness and a national trainer for the groundbreaking suicide prevention technique known as QPR, Question, Persuade, and Refer. David is a keynote speaker and leads workshops and has even been invited to speak on the TEDx stage. David's goal is to shed light on the issue of mental illness, teaching people how to leverage curiosity to overcome our fears and use connection to create hope. I am so honored and delighted to have David here with us today. David, thank you so much. Welcome to the show. I think, Sue, thank you so much for having me. I, I love doing podcasts. Um, it, it's different than giving a speech, and, and I get to interact with amazing hosts like you that are out there doing uh, extraordinary work and changing minds, uh, broadening perspectives, and really saving lives. Ah. Oh. I think that is so sweet. Thank you so much. I mean, I am just so moved and touched by the work that you are doing. And I mean, talk about changing lives. It's really incredible work that you're doing. So give us, um, I know you had your own struggles and this is how uh, this came about. So, you know, as much of that as you'd like to kind of share and then tell us how this line of work did come about for you. Absolutely. So I, my story begins so on August 31st, 2011, and, and that is the day I was going to kill myself. As I like to say, that was the day that the monster, in which I refer to as this, really this demon, this enemy of, in my case, clinical depression and suicidal ideation, on that terrible day, convinced me of this, really this whole buffet of dark and awful lies that I was stupid and weak and pitiful, grotesque, ugly, literally hideous looking, that I had become an embarrassment and a burden to the people in my life. And if you look, if you read interviews from people like myself who have survived a suicide attempt, probably the most common response is, is that on the day that they attempted suicide, that they held a similar belief that I did on that day. And that is this awful, awful lie that we hold as truth, not as a possibility. And it's not logical in the sense that it's an absolute, like we could, we could measure it, but it is so. And that universal response is, I thought if I killed myself, I knew if I killed myself, everybody would be better off without me. Their lives would improve, not just a little bit, but exponentially better. My former wife, Dee, my family, my friends, if I just killed myself, this burden, this embarrassment, this, this scourge, this thing that had no redeeming value, it would be out of their life, this obstacle, and they'd be better. And it is a tragic thing because in my case, nobody in my life said these things. Nobody said that I was ugly or stupid or pitiful or grotesque, that I was an embarrassment and burden. And certainly nobody told me, no one even planted the seed that if I killed myself, I would be better. And that's the thing, Sue, that the, the monster has this awful ability to suck somebody like me into a place of isolation and then work in our minds, not necessarily from a psychosis or, or voices or anything else, but just these dark, awful thoughts. And, and the sequence is, is that the dark, awful thoughts held in mind, constantly ruminating for whatever period of time, circulating around, creates these overwhelming emotions which drive the action. So it's thought, emotion, 
action. So here I've come to this knowing. And, and really at the core of suicide, in my opinion, it's not about logic. It's not about reason. It's not about data. It's not about science. It's about one thing. It's about belief. And we all have at least one personal belief that we are passionate about. And standing firmly in that belief, it doesn't matter if somebody came to us with data and says, hey, David, I have this report, which empirically shows that your belief is wrong. We don't care. And it's important that I think we understand that because the souls like myself who get to that terrible place, we are being driven forth with a set of beliefs. Mm -hmm. So here I am on this day being driven forth by these awful beliefs, the, the primary one that everybody would be better off without me. And Deanna and I were living about two hours east of San Francisco on this beautiful two and a half acre piece of property. And on that morning, and in the end of August in Northern California, there's no chance of rain. And so, so I woke up and took a walk around the property and then sat down at the computer and typed out this suicide note. Dear Deanna, I have decided that the time has come for me to go. I am choosing to end my life to be free of the pain in my heart and soul, the betrayal of my mind, and the depth of self-hatred that I feel. I have become a burden I wish I never would and a drag on those around me. I am a damaged shell of a boy, not yet close to the man I should be. Everyone will be much better off without me. I am so very sorry. And then took the note off the printer and made a short 20-minute drive from where Deanna and I were living to what's known as the Forest Hill Bridge. Now, of course, everybody knows the iconic Golden Gate Bridge, just two hours to mm -hmm. the west. But the Forest Hill Bridge is almost unknown outside of the, the small proximity that where it exists. But it's 730 feet, so it is 500 feet further off the ground than its more famous cousin. Mm -hmm. I parked my vehicle, made my way to the midpoint, stretched my arms on the barrier, and then bent over. 49% of my body weight on the rail heading down towards the North Fork of the American River and 51% back at that moment. But first responder, in response to a 911 call, somebody having looked at this scene and thought, dear God, something's wrong with this picture, approached me from the left-hand side and did the most essential thing that I think each and every one of us can do right now to beat this enemy of suicide is he created connection. And connection creates hope. Hope is a weapon, and hope saves lives. The monster of suicide has no defense against hope. And with hope, all things are possible. And on a day I thought it would be my last day alive, it wasn't so the first steps in what has now been an 11-year journey. I've had 11 years of life I never thought I would. And this journey from mental illness to mental wellness to now be here with you. Mm, wow. Okay. So, so many questions now, David. Um, so, you know, like there's this belief inside of you, but that was, must have all of these feelings of unworthiness and all of this, I mean, those came from somewhere, right? Like, was it through childhood trauma and just a buildup of that? And I'm, um, if so, assuming that's all of the work you've now done since then to find your own self-worth. Exactly. Now, and you know, there's an interesting, so for me, just to kind of, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go back and forth on this. So for me, the, the genesis, the, the creation of, of those horrific thoughts who create the emotions, which drive the actions was this unfortunate, terrible confluence of two things. You know, when you have two rivers come together, which is interesting that there are two rivers that come together right underneath the, the Forest Hill Bridge. 
they create a vortex. It, it can be easy to be sucked into this thing and, and drown, which was the case for me. So I inherited genetics. Grandfather had killed himself. Beloved father had suffered terribly from depression, died at 41 from cancer, but now knowing the fight, depression just made him, just hollowed him out. Cancer just came and scooped up the remains. But just because we have a genetic predisposition of anything, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that we're going to suffer from it. There, if you imagine, as it was explained to me, Sue, genetic predisposition is like, like kindling for a fire. Something's got to light it. It has to be a match. And with mental illness, with suicidal ideation, with depression, these things, that matches almost always trauma. And for me, unfortunately, I had trauma. And it really goes to the point that you asked. And, and mine was an incredibly difficult combination. One, that I lost my father when I was just seven. And that at 11 years old, had the horror of being sodomized and raped twice by a Boy Scout leader. Mm. And, and the more work I do, the more I'm convinced is that while genetics can play a part, I think it's incredibly, it's a very small percentage. It's really, it's all about trauma. Trauma, trauma leaves a mark. Trauma, trauma kills a part of you. Trauma is, a, is this internal condition invisible to other people that is corrosive. It'll literally eat you alive. And it, it does it very slowly and cruelly. And I ran across a quote from a woman by the name of Jane Levy who, who puts trauma in such an incredibly impactful and visual description in which she says, trauma fractures comprehension as a pebble shatters a windshield. The wound at the site of impact spreads across the field of vision, obscuring reality, challenging belief. Mm. So before my nightmare of being raped at 11 years old, my belief, my whole set of belief was I'm good, I'm worthy, I'm loved, I'm okay, I'll be taken care of. After that, in unfortunately both a, a literal and a figurative sense, the whole of who I am is split open and the seeds of those dark, awful thoughts are planted into my very being. And then over the course of some 40 years, they became systemic. And they, they began to choke off all the truth of who each and every one of us are. Not, we make mistakes and we do stupid things, but it, it doesn't mean that we are sentenced to be devoured by this monster of suicide. But trauma kept inside is trauma that can heal. But on the converse of that, in words of the great sage, Mr. Rogers, who said, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And I think the single best thing we can do in the creation of connection, as this first responder did for me on that dark spot on that tall, tall bridge, is in the words of Lady Bird Johnson, to give, an, to give a person the opportunity to hurt out loud, to open up and allow this pain to go forth, to dissipate, and to help them relieve some of this weight and move in their own journey from mental illness to mental wellness. It's possible, I know, because as mentioned to you before the show, in concert with other extraordinary people, we cannot be well alone. We're not meant to be well alone. We can do it in partnership. Wow. Oh my God, David, that was so powerful. And, um, you know, a couple of things here. First of all, I want to just commend you for sharing even, you know, those parts of the trauma, uh, being sodomized and whatnot, because I think, you know, I know we're turning a corner here with shame and people being, especially men in particular, 
mm-hmm. feeling, you know, safer. I know some men who have been through similar things and they carry that trauma. I mean, they're, I'm close to them. I'm good friends with them. So they were able to share in private, but they're holding that inside still. And it continues to eat away at them. Um, but for you to share publicly, uh, you know, the power of that in just, I have to commend you. I just honor you. And I think it's so amazing that you can uh, be out there with this and free yourself of this and show other people, um, you know, that it is liberating and powerful to be able to share and let it go essentially. No, and you're right. And, and you know, I, I can't emphasize enough that I would not be at this place without the support of extraordinary people. My family, um, my beloved now, my previous wife, Deanna, who's still a very, very good friend, incredible psychiatrist, incredible therapist that, that allowed me those initial opportunities to share this. And now each and every time in the grace of, of somebody like you or an audience that I have a chance to share that part, it, it takes away one more flake of shame that, that still attaches to me. And one of the things in, in emphasizing the impact of, of trauma, and I don't use stats for the most part. I don't, I typically don't use a PowerPoint because I want to share personally. Um, and I front load my talks with the problem because I think what we're doing is in our passionate attempt to solve the problem, we're stepping over the problem, but we don't understand the problem. You know, I tell people I'm a touchy-feely speaker, and it's a good thing because suicide is a touchy-feely thing. Like, it's all about feelings. It's all about emotions. It's all about these things. And say, well, real men can't talk about their feelings. Well, real men are dying from suicide. Like, how's that working for us? Mm -hmm. And the one stat that I will use is, it's interesting, because if you now, Sue, go into the internet and says, what's the percentage of people who attempt or do, in fact, kill kill themselves? how many of those people are suffering from mental illness. And unfortunately, what you'll read is it's 90%. And and that is not true. That they have done numerous what they call meta-analysis, which you probably know, took 50 years of of data. And it's actually the majority of people who attempt or do end their life by suicide, Sue, are not mentally ill. Now, I live in the box of that, but I'm actually in the minority. And so the question comes up, my dear God, with somebody who has no mental illness, because we automatically think that, why would they kill themselves? And it's basically because of one thing, it's because of life. And I tell people, and this, you know, dear sister here now with you, the truth is every single person in the world is at risk for suicide. Mm-hmm. And it's not because we're mentally ill, it's because of this thing called life. Imagine the, the horror of these shootings that we have suffered just here in, in the last week or so. Mm-hmm. Imagine, especially with Texas, can you imagine if you are a parent and your child is murdered in that way, that mm-hmm. I think any of us could say, wow, that could get us into a place of hopelessness. And I think that's ultimately what happens is trauma of any kind, trauma in the fact that life suit can come up and change in an instant can bring us into the place of hopelessness. If there is no hope, there's no reason. And, and with all that, what I like to share with, with what I call all people's souls, not from a religious perspective, from, but from the fact there's something greater inside of us, and that greater thing gets damaged. It gets hurt. It's not broken. They're wounded. They're injured. They've been, they've been hurt. And if you think about life, that the truth is human distress 
is not a mental illness. Trauma is not a mental illness, but we automatically think it is when somebody's driven to that terrible point. We have to change that conversation. Just realize, you know what? Human distress, the response that we have to that is completely normal, but, but we haven't normalized the conversation. And, and I had this realization the other day when I was flying back from, the, from an event. I'm like, because of the prevalence of the, the, unfortunately, the incorrect information empirically, but also the prevailing attitude of society that anybody who is suicidal is automatically mentally ill. Imagine now what the impact is of people who have suffered a horrific experience of trauma. And because society tells us, well, if you're contemplating suicide, you must be mentally ill. Imagine now what we are doing to that person who has been traumatized we are convincing them that they're mentally ill. Mm. I'm like, oh, dear God. Right. Like this attitude, this prevailing thought is killing people. Not just we're convincing them in addition to what the not like we're working in partnership with the monster. We're mm. aiding and abetting the enemy. So I just said we have to change this. hmm. Wow. Um, so David, now, you know, it's so interesting for me and I've shared, um, here and there and some of my writing and things, um, and I do intend on sharing this more extensively, but, you know, I have a direct, um, uh, connection to suicide because when I was, uh, 16 years old, my cousin killed himself mm-hmm. and I found him. Oh. And it was, um, and I've had insomnia ever since. And oh I'm now, uh, you know, I'm now uh, actually recovering from that. But, uh, you know, I've spent so much time trying to understand this, so much time with kind of, you know, self-blame and shame around why didn't I do something? Why didn't I know? Why couldn't I have stopped it? How did I not know this or why couldn't I help him? You know, and there were really no signs. He wasn't mentally ill. And, um, I love that you're getting this out there. It was a, you know, traumatic shock to my psyche. And, um, yeah, so I really appreciate you kind of sharing this, uh, you know, other insight and this other, um, kind of deeper, you know, understanding of this, that it's not just people, who are mentally ill. It's never just obvious. It's any one of us could be, you know, fall victim to it or have someone who's feeling suicidal and is perfectly, you know, uh, mentally well, but having some sort of belief system that's encouraging that. And, and if you think about it, Sue, and, and, and again, I, I just, part of my purpose is just to flip this whole thing on its head. It's just, and I, I think that there's great work that's being done by amazing people. Great Kevin Hines, who, who survived one of, one of 12, I think, 19 people. No, he, of, of course, won, who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. And Kevin's doing extraordinary work. There's a great, there's an amazing researcher, Dr. Craig Bryant, who, who wrote what I think is the best book on the subject called Rethinking Suicide. And, and he has influenced my work as well. Um, there's Dr. Thomas Joyner, who talks about, he has a, uh, what he calls the interpersonal theory of suicidal behavior. And what, what Dr. Joyner says is three things need to be present for a person to kill themselves. First thing is a sense of burdensomeness. Okay, check. 
a sense of social isolation or alienation check. And the third thing, Sue, is really interesting. I didn't understand it when I first read it. It says an individual would kill themselves with those two things in hand. They have to have what they call the acquired ability or the acquired capacity for death. And what that means is somebody has to, for whatever over whatever period of time, has been able to overcome the strongest instinct in human nature, and that is the will to survive. And so how they do that is either repeated exposure to trauma, the repeated, like, unfortunately, you, dear sister, have had to experience the repeated memory of trauma, the rumination of that, mm-hmm. self-harm, or just the habituation of thought, that when those three things are together, a person most likely will kill themselves. But it's interesting. And, and my whole on the positive side, really my message is, is that connection creates hope. Hope is a weapon. You know, we think of hope as this soft, cuddly thing, and that's true. But on the other side of that coin, hope is relentless. Hope is ruthless in its pursuit of its enemy of suicide, of isolation, of despair, of trauma. And hope will not stop. And that's why hope saves lives. And it's interesting, if you read what Dr. Dr. Joyner talks about, he said there is, when these three things are present, burdensomeness, isolation, and the acquired capacity for death. When those three things are present, there's one saving thing. There's only one thing. And paraphrasing what he says, he uses the word, that the, here's what he said, that the need for belonging is so strong, and I would say the need for connection, the need for belonging is so strong that when satisfied, even when these other factors are present, a person will not kill themselves. Mm-hmm. That we have this. And, and what I like to say, I'm not saying this is easy. You know, you have had to work. I can't imagine what your experience must have been like to discover this beloved soul who had passed, somebody that was so important to you, and how that wounded you, how it hurt you, didn't break you, but how you have had to work so valiantly over all these years to process, to heal, to bring your trauma to life, to mention it so it's manageable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a, um, uh, you know, it's been a challenge and, um, uh, uh, you know, just like everyone, I am a work in progress, but I have done mm-hmm. extensive work around that. So, um, yeah, it's really something. And now let me ask you, David, do you feel, cause I think it's, it's so beautiful that you, in that moment, right? Like divine timing, have that guy arrive right. there a, a minute later, right? If 30 seconds later, whatever. What are your thoughts on that? Do you feel um, like now with this amazing work that you're doing and saving lives and speaking about this so powerfully and empowering others and offering hope, do you feel divinely um kind of like there was this greater calling or purpose for you with this? Yeah, you know, and and I speak mostly in secular environments, so I I try to keep it that way. I also preach a lot. I'm not a pastor. I'm a preacher, so all across the theological spectrum. Thomas Paine has this great article or great quote that says, the world is my country, all mankind are my brethren, and to do good is my religion. That I I adopt that as, as my creed. And I'm a, I'm a freak about serendipity. I, mm. I don't believe there are accidents. Now, let me say, when I, I don't believe, let me use the word life, 
um, and we can interpret that any way that you, that you would like to. I don't believe life has its fingerprints, nor is life's DNA on any trauma. I don't. I also don't believe not everything has a silver lining. I don't. I don't believe that at all. My, my situation, your situation, there is no silver lining in that at all. And yet, life is always looking to respond to our hurt. The, the great rabbi Harold Kushner wrote an amazing book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and he lost his beloved son, Aaron, the premature aging disease. And he, and he here's a cleric trying to, to process all this. And what he came to believe, and I'll use the G word here because he does, he said he came to believe that on the day Aaron died, God's heart broke as much as mine. And so I think we live in a universe that is constantly trying to respond to our needs because life can be so incredibly awful and difficult. And so I think what we need to do, Sue, is to, to recognize these serendipitous moments that that man that officer on that bridge at that moment, the psychiatrist who in the hospital, in the psych ward where I was for 15 days when I shared the, the rape and the sodomy for the first time and had regret because I still sh shared like you, shame. He mm -hmm. told me four simple words. He says, it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. You know, the change of life. And all these different little things it can be, it's just so simple that I think if we recognize it for me, and I'll, I'll use a hymn, again, this is not about preaching in any way, shape. There's a great hymn that says, his eye is on the sparrow, but he watches over me. Every moment of serendipity for me, Sue, because I've lived so much of my life feeling unworthy, even to this day, because I still have challenges, still have thoughts of killing myself, but I know what to do. I spent so much of my life being in a place of isolation that serendipitous call it divine moment has me has gives me this experience like wow all that life has to do in this spinning blue marble that's put in perfect proximity to the sun and the stars somehow life now is paying attention to me and so i think that the more i recognize that the more i see it and it gives me hope really the whole thing is, is it's all about hope because one thing never happens when people have hope people never kill themselves People never kill themselves when they're hopeful. And we can always presence hope by way of connection. To go back to paraphrase what Dr. Joyner says, that the, the need to belong is so strong that when satisfied, even when these three things are present, the person lives. It's all about hope. It's, mm. it's hope. Mm. Now, for someone feeling hopeless, how, where do they start to cultivate hope? It, so th there's a couple different ways. I mean, one that for a soul like me, you got to take care of yourself, and 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 that's a little too vague. So I was have been advised, coached, supported to put what I call my self care on a pedestal. Now self care is I don't know another word because I think okay, self care, get a massage, sit in a bubble bath, you know, that's great, especially if somebody's in there with you. But that's not necessarily self care in that regard. So for me. The monster will eat all of me. It's it just the entire thing. And I say body, mind, and spirit, however you define that, whatever your interpretation is or not. So it, depending on what the severity of your circumstances, and everybody has different severity, you can have situational depression. You, you can have situational trauma that you can heal. But for me, 
It's about diet, sleep, exercise, time outside. It's about counseling and therapy. It's about psychiatry. It's about the two meds that I take every day. It's about group walking, sitting with a, a, amongst a, a group of people, not in a therapeutic sense, but, but can relate. Not so much I feel you as I'm feeling with you. Mm-hmm. And one of the great acronyms of hope is hearing other people's experiences. So mm-hmm. I have this care of body, care of mind. And then spirit for me is not necessarily for, for some who go to, a, like myself, go to a house of faith. Spirit is about purpose. It's about meaning. In the words of the great Simon Sinek, it is our why. In the absence of, of a purpose or a why, there is no hope. So all roads of self-care lead to hope. When our body feels good, we're hopeful. When our mind feels at peace and, and clear and, and calm, we're hopeful. When, when we have a sense of purpose, we are hopeful. So in answer for two parts of this question, answer, first, it takes a lot of work. It, it does. I would love to say it's easy. You know, I would love Sue, for you to go to my therapy appointments and allow me to benefit. But we can't. We have to do this, but we don't do it alone. And then the other part is it's connection. Three most important words in mental health and suicide prevention are connection, connection, connection. Because in every single connection, hope is always there because our minds can't hold competing thoughts. Can't think about killing myself when I'm in the presence of you. At, at a minimum, I've, I'm back to a place of neutrality on a bad day. But connection always, because this need for belonging and connection is so strong, hope is there. And I teach three methods, recognition, understanding, and expression. I teach people, become a master at remembering people's names. Because we know what it's like to feel invisible. Imagine when we just practice it, and we give that gift of recognition to somebody who, unbeknownst to us on a day, and it happens, they're suffering. And then how about if we leverage curiosity to create understanding? Because we know what it feels like when someone allows us to tell our story and then become masters at expressing ourselves, to letting people, not just to hurt out loud, but to let people know how we feel about them. William James, who's considered to be the the founder of American psychology, says that the deepest principle in human nature is the craving to be appreciated. And it's not so much appreciated for what somebody does, who they are. Like, I appreciate the fact that you are in my life. I now sue, sue with you. I have this connection. And in regards to this latter point, you know, we can send a text, which is a beautiful thing. We can make a phone call. We can, we can do an email, but I teach people really, let's go back to the handwritten note because we all know what it's like, especially on a tough day to go to the mailbox. And there's that uniquely sized envelope that's handwritten and has usually some very cute return address label and we know it's going to be good because if people think we're a butthead, they're going to send us a text. They're not going to use a stamp. And, and I share all these different notes that I have received over the years. And, and they're just, they always create hope. So for, for my brother or sister who's out there suffering, you got to take care of yourself. And it's a lot of work. You know, oftentimes it's inconvenient. Oftentimes I don't want to do it. Oftentimes I just want to. Be, which I get and I honor, but I always know, I also know what it's like on the other side of that. I know. And I had an interesting experience recently that I was on a plane, it was early in the morning, and I was looking out the window because I was on the window seat. And for the first time soon in my entire life, I had the clarity about what the impact of my death would be. Now, it wasn't about guilt. What it was, it was about work. I 
my death would have impacted people because I had a place of worth in their life. And I, I mentioned that one because it was an unbelievable experience, but also to for the people who are trying to understand somebody like me, it's that it has taken me a long time to get to that place and I still forget it. And so to flip it back to the brother or sister out there, what I'm sharing is that if you care for your body, mind, and spirit, if you leverage the act of recognition, understanding, and expression in every part of your life because it's reciprocal, that's a tenant of your own self-care and something you can give to somebody else, I can promise you, you will have experiences of hope. You will have these glimpses, these moments of mental health, the likes of which that I never thought possible. Mm, wow. That is so beautiful, David. Now, uh, you know, let me ask you, like this discovering, having this kind of epiphany in that moment on the airplane of, okay, I have this place of worth with these other people, but was there, was that not being conveyed to you? Were you in denial of it? What, cause I think a lot of people, right. We have people around us who love us, who have a, you know, hold worth for us. And we are, you know, me, mean something to them, but we're not always having those deeper conversations, right? We're not people, we're not telling our loved ones, Hey, I really love you. You matter and vice versa. So talk to us about that. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And I think, cause I, I have, my former wife, who's still a great friend of mine, wonderful person, and and you know my family. So I, I had, from the outside looking in, and in the reality, connection. And people say, "Well, gosh, you know, does that kind of go against your theory?" And I said, "It doesn't, because what still was inside was the hurt that wasn't expressed. So all of that trauma that I'd never shared, all of this internal fight, this." this invisible battle that, that I was one of those smiling depressives and one of those smiling people who suffered with suicidal ideations for close to 40 years. And if my family knew the hurt, they would have allowed me the space to speak it. But I had become convinced that that was the worst thing I could do both for them and because the monster had convinced me. So I think for those who are trying desperately to help somebody who's suffering. What I, I get this question a lot, which is a beautiful question. They say, you know, I don't know what to do. I, I've tried everything. And I say, you know what? Ask them how it feels. Like the questions, the three questions, the three initial questions to, from, the fir- from the first responder to me on that bridge. First one was, David, would you please tell me what does it feel like to be depressed? Now that's a counterintuitive question. You think, dear God, man, why don't you just toss that soul over the bridge? No, that's the question that needs to be asked. That's the difficult question. And then he said, David, would you please tell me, what is it like on your worst days? And he said, David, what's going on when you feel hopeless? And then he just listened. I think sometimes what we want to do is we want to give people our advice for good intention, but really people, people just want support. And then he listened. And, and the great Rachel Naomi Remen, who wrote the amazing book, Kitchen Table Wisdom, says this about listening, that our listening creates a sanctuary for the homeless parts in another person. The person who is in the place of suicide, they are, they're homeless. They're homeless mentally, spiritually, and psychologically. And the simple act of asking a counterintuitive question to allow a soul to hurt outside 
and thus creates a space of feeling understood, thus feeling connected, thus feeling hopeful, for me, shifted my body weight all the way back so I was on the safe side of the rail. But Dr. Paul Quinette, who is the creator of QPR, which is like CPR for mental health, says it's the unasked questions that lead to tragedy. And these are not easy questions. They're difficult questions. But we got we to gotta use connection. We have to use curiosity like a scalpel. And they say with cancer, you got to get good margins. We got to clear out the hurt first before we can put something else in. And I think what's happening is because of the uncomfortability of the questions, which I totally get, we're trying to add stuff on top. It's not going to sink down. So we got to do it different. We just we got to flip it. And the other thing is that I share with you is we're never going to get to zero suicides. It's never going to happen because we're in this thing called life. Because life can jump up like it did in Texas, like it did in Buffalo, like it's done in these other places and change in an instant that will put us into a place of distress and trauma in which hope is no longer existent. But it doesn't mean that we can't save lives and we can do it in incredibly simple ways. And Drew Ramsey, Dr. Drew Ramsey says this, and, and what I take an hour to share in speech, he does it in one short paragraph. And, he, and this is applicable to, to, to you and I and everybody else. And here, this is his words. Someone you see today is thinking about killing themselves. Your smile, your question, your love could save them. Trust me, they told me it did. So mm-hmm. someone we see today is thinking about killing themselves. Your smile, recognition, your question, understanding, your love, expression could save them. Trust me, they told me it did. We can do that. Mm-hmm. We, we, we can save lives. Wow. That is so powerful, David. Now, let me ask you, you know, a purpose. I know I'm an avid believer in this as well. Like it just, when people many times are feeling hopeless or lost, there's that that lack of, you know, or sense of lacking that sense of purpose, right? They don't know what their purpose is. They're not excited about something or working towards something. It's just kind of this monotonous thing. Um, do you, for you, is, is it like this kind of clear cut thing where prior to the suicide, there was this lack of purpose and now you're just fulfilled in your purpose? Is that fair to say? Well, actually it's, it, it was actually different. So um, my former beloved and I ran an incredibly successful and, and internationally recognized end of life animal sanctuary called A Chance for Bliss. And the sanctuary was home to as many as a hundred animals at any one time. And we did no adoptions because we wanted the ones that nobody wants. So in that moment had extraordinary purpose. I mean, at one point we were the cover story in the life section of USA Today, but as a high functioning depressive, as a, as a smiling depressive, there, I was, was moving forth. There, there was that sense of purpose, but, but ultimately because the pain and the trauma unexpressed became systemic. The purpose alone wasn't enough to save me. So, mm. but what happened is, and again, life responding to my cry is what I do now is I use the sanctuary doesn't exist anymore, but I use stories of animals from the sanctuary to wrap mental health and to give people of all ages. It's not just, hey, look at the animal that's cute, but there's always a teaching point. And 
And it's an extraordinary gift that I don't take any credit for because in moments of exercise or whatever, there's these ideas for stories come and, and they work because it, it gives people proximity to the subject without jamming it down their throat. And so now I feel like I have an incredible purpose. And, and in terms of what my mission is, it's, it's twofold. One, I can put it two different ways. One, I want to make suicide uh, what I call a casserole disease. So in other words, if, if you're in some sort of group or congregation, when, when a member is in some sort of distress, we show up with something baked, something yummy, some, usually a casserole. But when somebody's been in a psych ward or, or a family member of a friend is is been suicidal or going through a tough time, we, we tend to step back. Well, what if we change that? What if we went to them with, with something like to show up at their house and say, would you please break bed with us? And another way I put it is, I want to change suicide from a condition to a cause. Think breast cancer. Because when something becomes a cause, stigma can't attach itself to us. Can you imagine, Sue, like if we spoke with any kind of disparaging tone of a heroic woman or man, for that matter, who has overcome and has survived breast cancer, then we'd be taken out in the woodshed and rightfully so, just beaten. So what if we got to the same place with suicide, that it becomes this cause, which I think we're moving this way because, again, once something becomes a cause, it's Teflon. Stigma can't attach itself. And I think we'll hit that place of, the criti- of critical mass. Absolutely. Mm, wow. Okay, David, you are just, oh, my God. You have so many insights, and I would love to circle back and do this with you again go deeper. Cause I feel like we're just kind of scratching the surface here. <laughs> this is like a kind of a, you know, a never ending conversation. It, there's just so much um, wisdom that you're bringing to this and shedding so much light on it. And I just think it's so amazing. And so first of all, I want to just thank you today for your time. You have been so incredibly just inspiring and, um, I'm touched and moved so and honored to have had this time with you. Well, and the feeling, the feeling is mutual. Um, and I would love anytime you would like me, any way I can serve you. And I'm here as your servant. Um, and I'm happy next time we get together to tell you lots of animal stories. And they're great. They're great stories. They're just, they're so good. I get so excited because I'm like, oh, I, I don't, I don't have the wherewithal to come up with these stories. Like they just, it's amazing. They just pop into my head. I'm like, oh, that's such a great story. Oh my gosh. It, it really conveys. And also has a teaching point. I mean, they're very, I don't, I always like to say, look, not just they're cute. They were a teaching point. So I, yeah, I would, anytime you need it, you just, you know what, call and I will answer. Oh, I love that. Yes. And I would love, love, love to have you share those animal stories. I mean, it sounds amazing. So that's exactly what we're going to do next time. And now in closing, I would, you've already shared like so many amazing insights, so much wisdom, so much just great uh, practical tips and guidance. But in closing, if there were one powerful message, your hope for the world, one thing you'd like to leave us with, what would that be? You know what? And this has come to me. Thank you for the question is for the soul who is suffering in those tough moments. And, and one, I would say, I am so sorry that you're suffering. And what I would also say is, is I would say, have hope, hold on pain at, 
I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not trying to minimize your pain. But, but what I know is to hold on pain end. And if you can, ask yourself, consider this one question that somebody asked me one day. What would it be like if you felt like you were worthy? And I remember when someone shared that question, wow, that, that would be, that changes everything. And so brother or sister who's out there is just, just hold on pain ends. And just, if you can, ask yourself, what would it be like? What would your life be like? What would the feeling be like if you're worthy? Because the truth is, you are. Mm. Wow. I love it, David. You've been awesome. I thank you so much. Abs, thank you for allowing me to be here. This is like, a, this is a good day. <laughs> oh, I love it. Thank you so much. <laughs>